If you'll remain standing for the word of the Lord, hear him as he speaks to us again this morning from John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and the paralyzed. One man who was there, an invalid, for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do once more ask for your blessing upon us, that you would indeed bless us by the power of your word that we have heard and which we now meditate on in your sight, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. Touch a little bit on verse 18 here in a few minutes. John chapter 5. Most of you, I suspect, are in a similar situation that I'm in. You learn to live with some things that are annoying or some things that are frustrating, some things that are broken that you just kind of adjust to in life. We all have uh, periods or things in our lives where different things happen or different problems are there, and we just kind of adjust to them. We, we make the necessary corrections, and we kind of live with things as they are, kind of broken or annoying as they are. Up until just recently, I, uh, Kelly and I have never owned a car that did not have 130,000 or more miles on it. Uh, we just always get these really old cars. And that is not because I'm a car guy and like fixing cars. I'm not a car guy. I'm a cheap guy. And so we always get these cheap cars across the board. And, of course, they have some mechanical problems along the line. But those are here or there. Uh, but cars, not only do they have some uh, particularly older cars, not some uh, mechanical issues, but they also got different quirks. The different cars have little oddities and stuff like that, and you kind of have to adjust to those. So I had this car at one point where the trunk would not open. Uh, It wouldn't pop from inside. You couldn't use the key in the outside. It was just a car that just, the trunk simply wasn't there. Uh, We had this one car where the key was stuck in the ignition uh, the whole time. You could turn the car off, but you couldn't pull the key out. And we kept hoping somebody would steal that car. Uh, the car was always in there, never, never taken out. Now, this one's going to terrify some of the folks that are a little bit older at this time point, but we had this one car that had an 8-track player in it, and it played nonstop 
the track that was in there. You couldn't drive the car without the track playing the greatest hits of Barry Manilow. Yes, so he over and over again. It was. You remember that car? You, Greg, might know. Uh, so we had the, the, this car. I had this one car that the the window wouldn't go up and down. The the window was stuck up, and you couldn't. And so, and but you learn to adjust to it. You pull up to a ticket booth, and you kind of have to open up the door and pull it out. Somebody comes to the window to talk to you. You have to open. You'd be amazed how often you need your window until you don't have it, and then it's like, wow, that window always. Always is present here, but you just get used to it across the board. Well, at one point, I finally have some guy in the car with me, and we're driving somewhere, and he sees me keeping to open up the door to get everything. And he says, you know, I know what's wrong with the window in your car. We could fix this. It's not a big deal. And I kind of went, nah, never mind, because I just kind of gotten used to it. It was kind of the quirks of the car, and I'm just we just we adjust to the weirdo things around us, and we just kind of make the best of them, and we don't necessarily think of anything other than that, which leads us to John chapter 5. So again, if you have your Bibles open, you'll notice that in John chapter 5, the first verse begins here with the statement, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, every time in the Scriptures that John, the Gospel of John, uh, mentions a feast, except for this one, he identifies which one it is. There were seven major feasts in, uh, of the Jews. It was centered around their calendar. So each year you'd have seven different celebrations. Some of those celebrations required everybody to go to Jerusalem. Uh, this is one of those feasts. We don't know which one it is because John doesn't identify it. The rest of the scriptures, John always identifies which feast it is. And that's probably because something about the particular feast impacts the story that follows. There's nothing about this particular story that we read that ties to the particular feast, so John doesn't bother telling us which one it is. It is helpful, though, this verse doesn't orient us towards which feast it is, but why Jesus was there. He was in Jerusalem. In previous stories, we've known, we've heard that Jesus is down in Jerusalem, in Judea, then he's in Samaria, then he's in Galilee, he's back and forth. Well, this opening verse orients us Jesus is in Jerusalem. So, in Jerusalem, by, there is a sheep gate and a pool there called Bethesda. The sheep gate, uh, Jerusalem is a walled city, so just like all the ancient Near East cities at that time, and there were uh, five or six main access points into the city. So, gates into the wall where you could come into the city, and that was obviously for protection and those kind of things. You would build a big wall around the city, and the, the Jerusalem wall was very significant, and so then you would need access into it. So one of, the se- one of the gates was called the Sheep Gate. Now the Sheep Gate most likely is the one that's on the very northern part of uh, Jerusalem, and it's near the temple, probably called the Sheep Gate, because that's where people would bring their sheep in from the fields in order to sacrifice them at the temple. So right near there, there is this pool. And the pool is called Bethesda. And we're told that there are five roofed colonnades around the pool. Now a colonnade is one of these things where, uh, picture the columns. You've got the big Greco-Roman columns that you picture. A colonnade is a series of these. So five or six, ten or twenty columns all in a row. That's a colonnade that then is covered over uh, with some type of a roofing structure. So around this pool, now when you think of a pool, uh, don't think of the backyard the swimming pool or something. This is something bigger than that and shallow, 
kind of like if you've been in Washington, D.C., and you've seen the reflecting poles that are there. Okay, the reflecting poles in Washington, D.C. are probably bigger than what this pole was. They have found this pole archaeologically, so they kind of know exactly where it is in some of its dimensions. So that the pole is, is smaller than that reflecting pole, but that's more along the idea of what this is. And around it is this roofing structure in which you can cast shade down upon the pole, et cetera, et cetera. So then, you can see then, immediately after finding or identifying the pole and what it is, we're told that in these, verse 3, in the shaded areas, in the colonnades, so around the pole, in these, were lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So around this pole, there would be all of these disabled people, physically disabled people, that would have various illnesses and various pains, and they would be under the roofing colonnade, obviously to, to escape the heat of the day, etc. And also because, as we're going to hear in a little bit, the pole had some type of uh, superstitious powers where it would heal somebody or could possibly heal somebody. So there's all of these people, and notice the word that is used here in Scripture, there's a multitude of people, there's this, all of these disabled people are surrounding this pole, and now we are told in verse 5, one man who had been there, he was an invalid for 38 years. In verse 5, we're not told what his problem is, but he was an invalid for 38 years. A little bit later when we hear how Jesus heals him, you get the picture that he was paralyzed or was lame or something along those lines, couldn't walk, couldn't stand, and so Jesus uh, heals him in that regard. But in verse 5, we know that he had been an invalid for 38 years. First thing that comes to my mind when I read this passage, or the first question that bumps into my head, is why this particular guy? Now, the text makes it clear that when Jesus shows up at the pole and is walking there, there's a whole multitude of people. And we know from the Scriptures the power of Jesus, the divine power of Jesus, that if He wanted to, He could have snapped His fingers and everybody would have been healed. Or He could have walked through and tapped everybody and everybody would have been healed. He could have done anything He wanted... And yet the passage here narrows down amidst all of these multitudes, it narrows onto this one particular individual who has been disabled for 38 years. Now, if we were only there in the passage, it'd be tempting to think that somewhere along the text we're going to read something about this man that helps us to explain why it is that Jesus singles him out. Maybe, for instance, he's a particularly nice guy, or he has a family that really cares and loves him, or he ex expresses great confidence in faith in Jesus. But that's really not the picture you get of this guy at all. If you were paying attention while I read the story, and as we're going to look through it in a little bit here, you see that this guy, at best, is just kind of a grumpy guy. Whenever Jesus asks him a question, do you want to be healed? He kind of responds to Jesus like, well, you know, I can't do anything. He, he reads this, he kind of comes across as, as a grouch or something like this. Later on in the text, we're going to see that when trouble comes, when the Pharisees approach this guy and try to uh, put him under the thumb, that he just quickly tosses Jesus under the bus. He says, hey, I'm doing this only because I was told to by this guy. When he finds out who Jesus is, he immediately runs and tells the Pharisees, 
who, who Jesus is to try to get Jesus into trouble. There's nothing remarkable about this guy. As a matter of fact, he is a bit of... I had one person, somebody once called me a curmudgeon, uh, which I looked up and really liked the definition of that. This guy kind of is a curmudgeon. He's just a grumpy... There's nothing admirable about... Now, coming off of the text in which we've been looking at, you'll remember over the past couple of weeks, we've looked, if you've been reading along in the Gospel of John, or if you've been in our services, or if not, you can go back and you look at these passages you'll see that Jesus has had interaction with a number of different individuals. One, he's interacted with Nicodemus. Uh, and then he's interacted with a Samaritan woman, and then a Gentile official, and now this paralyzed, uh, lame individual. Okay, There's a temptation, I think, that a lot of us have to identify ourselves with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as we know, got things wrong. He, he messed things up. Jesus had to correct him, even challenged him really harsh, rebuked him at one point. But by and large, we tend to think of ourselves as kind of like Nicodemus. Here's a man who's interested, who's religiously attuned, who knows a little bit of something, and who's challenged and, and who wants to, to understand more. So he goes to Jesus. He seeks out Jesus and says, hey, tell me more about this. So we want to think of ourselves a little bit like Nicodemus. No, you're not. Or we want to think of ourselves kind of at least like the Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman, she's doing her own thing. She's not really focused on what's going on. She's, she's uh, going about her life. But when Jesus comes on the scene and charges her and, and nudges her a little bit, the Samaritan woman kind of responds and then says, okay, if we want to talk about this, let me talk about this. And she's maybe not really religious, but she's willing at least to think about it. We want to think of ourselves a little bit like the Samaritan woman. As I'm going around my life, when religious things happen, then I'm going to pay. No, you're not. We might want to think of ourselves like the Gentile official, at least, who knows their great need who knows that they've got this huge problem. My son is dying. I need my son to be healed and cared. And so we're looking for anything and we're latching on to Jesus because hopefully Jesus can do something. We might want to think of ourselves like the Gentile official there that knows their need and at least comes... No, you're not. Why this story in John 5? I think it sets up for us not the outlier, not the person who is unusual, but I believe that this individual, this invalid, is supposed to be the paradigm that we find all of ourselves in. This is who we are. We are the ones who are invalids. We are the ones who are disabled. We are the ones who have nothing to offer to Jesus. That when Jesus shows up and says, Hey, <clears throat> Where, what are you doing here that we don't pay any attention, that we don't even notice that he is there, that we focus not on him at all? That's exactly what this invalid does. This man here has nothing to offer to Jesus. And yet, Jesus reaches out to him. This is a divine initiative. That image that has captured and pictured everyone in this room, not that we are so desperately seeking Jesus, but that he is so desperately seeking us. And so when the invalid is laying there at the pool and Jesus comes up to him, the invalid's not even paying attention. He's not looking to Jesus. When Jesus talks to him, he doesn't even respond to Jesus well. 
when he, when he doesn't say to Jesus, hey, help me, there's no expression. Notice this, that throughout this story, there's no expression of faith on the invalid's part. There's no indication that Jesus is saying to him, hey, if you come part way, I'll meet you halfway. Or I'll do my part if you just do your part. There's no picture of that at all through here. We have just a completely broken individual that God, out of the multitudes, for whatever reason, has chosen him to be the recipient of divine grace. And of course, that's the story for every single Christian in this room. That God has taken it upon Himself to reach into your life when you weren't paying any attention. When you were disadvantaged completely and totally spiritually. That He has taken it upon Himself to reach into your life and to give you divine mercy that you do not deserve. If you have the temptation to think of yourself like Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman or the official, you must recognize yourself here in the person who is so completely and fundamentally disabled that they have nothing to give to their Lord. So then... From why this guy, we ask, why this question? Notice how Jesus then responds to him. He comes up and he sees this guy. Verse 6, we're told, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time. How did Jesus know that this guy had been there for a long time? I don't know. I don't know if that was divine knowledge or if Jesus asked a bunch of questions or if somebody came up and nudged him and said, boy, this guy's been here for 38 years. I don't know how Jesus knew this, but he comes up to him and says something that is so classically Jesus. It's like, duh, do you want to be healed? The guy has for 38 years been an invalid. Now, as, as difficult as that can be in our society, in that society back then, to be lame or to be paralyzed was a crushing thing. For 38 years, the average life expectancy of a male in Jesus' time was about 40 years old. So almost for his entire life we get the picture that this guy has been lame and Jesus has the audacity, the stupidity, to come up to him and said, do you want to be healed? Hello? Why would he bother asking that question? For fear that this invalid would be just like me. Because here's the thing. I have a brokenness and a sin-riddled life and uh, habits and traits about me that I know, I know are not what God desires. And I know that they annoy people. And I know that they hinder my relationships. And I know they hinder my ministry. And I don't want them to do that. But do I really want to get healed? Because the reality is that I've learned to live with them. And if something happens to them, would I no longer be me? What would I have to give up to be healed? 
Because like my car window or my trunk or the key in the car, but not like Barry Manilow, but like all those other things, you get to a spot where you just say, I don't want my sin to embarrass me. I don't want my sin to show on the outside. But do I really want to do what's necessary to be healed? Now this guy responds to Jesus. He says, hey, I'm laying here at this pool, and the pool is seen, the idea is here that whenever the water gets stirred in the pool, so it was probably spring-fed water or something like that. Whenever the water gets all stirred up, the first person in gets healed. That's the superstition and stuff like that. And he says, and I'm lame and I can't get in the pool. Okay? So Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And this guy cannot see anything but the, he's looking in all the wrong directions for healing. And he, Jesus doesn't sit down with him and say, look, let me reorient your eyes from the pool to me. He doesn't sit there and say, hey, look, you don't have anything to give, but I'm going to give you this great thing. He simply speaks in the power of command. Do you see what he says there? Get up, take up your mat, and go. Get up, he says. That's a word that will refer itself to Jesus' own resurrection. He basically says to him, arise, become made new. And it's not, you do your part and I will do... Hey, I will come and I will help you into the waters. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to be your assistant. Jesus here doesn't say, I'm going to be your co-pilot. Jesus doesn't say, let's go this direction together. Jesus simply gives the voice of command, you get up right now. Get up. And immediately the passage says, the next verse in verse 9, immediately or at once the man was healed. At once. Now, what kind of heal? Pick up your mat. So get up, the power of command, and pick up your mat and go. Pick up your bed and go. As we know, if we, uh, we're listening as we read the story, that very part of the story is what gets Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees eventually. Because the Jewish mentality at that point was, you know, hey, don't carry the mat around and those kind of things. So he's carrying his bed. Why is it that Jesus tells him to carry his bed? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. One, you can identify fairly easily. This man for 38 years had been lame, who had been hanging around the pool, hoping to be made whole. And Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, because you're not coming back here anymore. Pick up your mat, because that's the old life. And that old life is no longer bearing upon you. Pick up your mat because that's no longer who you are. You have been made whole. You have been made new in my body and my blood. And Jesus brings him to full wholeness, complete wholeness, in such so, okay, 38 years. I don't know the medical stuff very well, but I can imagine this. After 38 years of not being used, his legs would have atrophied. The muscles would have shrunken. The bones would have been, you know, 38 years of not being used. And yet, by the power of God's command, it's not that, oh, you're on the road to healing. It's not, oh, now you're going to be able to do a little bit more, start stretching your legs, do these exercises. It is get up and pick up your mat and you can walk because of the full and complete total. I had back operation, oh, geez, 40 years ago. 
30 years ago, 30 some years ago, I had a back operation. And I had, uh, for about nine months, I'd been having trouble. And for the last three months, my left leg was, was paralyzed and I couldn't really walk with it. And so I just kind of dragged it around. And I kind of dragged it like this as I walked around. Well, the doc then puts me under the, and he does his operation. And I woke up and when I was walking, I could walk again. It was wonderful. No back pain. But the, the, my toes were just screaming at me. Every t- step I took was really, they were on fire and stuff like that. And I went to the doc and I said, hey, I think you did something wrong when you were yanking on my nerve or whatever. You yanked on, you know, my toes are not. He says, no, show me how you were walking for three months. And I showed him, he says, for three months you never used the muscles on your toes. And I have very strong toe muscles. Uh, he says, you, you've never used the muscles on your toes, and now suddenly here you're using them again. Of course they're, they're going to hurt. This guy for 38 years hadn't used his legs, and yet here he is, get up and walk, because that's the kind of healing that our Lord has done for you. That's the kind of healing that He does with you. There's not a believer in this room where He hasn't raised from the dead and said, okay, now that you are my child, you know, start working a little bit on this process and stuff like this. No, He raises us from the dead and says, right now you are my child. Right now you have the fullness of my blessing. Right now I look at you as though you've got the holiness of my very Son upon you. That's the image of the complete and total wholeness that God brings. It doesn't mean that there's never going to be trouble or there's never going to be problems in our lives. There's no promise of that in Scripture. What there is a promise in Scripture is that God who begins a work in you will bring it to completion in Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ, when He says to you, you are healed from your sin, He means it completely, totally. If, if you are somebody that needs to be reminded that you are not Nicodemus. You are, you are an invalid, powerless before God, completely dependent upon Him. Then hear this too. You are also the one out of the multitudes that He has come and said to you, Arise, pick up your mat, and go. There's not a Christian in this room that doesn't have the full, complete power, love of God resting upon them. He has taken you and He has healed you completely and totally. Get up. Pick up your bed and walk. Then verse 9 ends with that phrase, and it was the Sabbath. And it was the Sabbath day. And so the Jews then come to the man, he's carrying his mat, and says, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Okay, why is that even a question? Because the Jewish people, the Pharisees, are desperate to be faithful to the Word of God. And we know that the Word of God has that very powerful command in the Ten Commandments that we will honor God by honoring the Sabbath day. We will keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. That continued command rests upon us, and we all struggle too. Well, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy? And we wonder what it is and stuff like that. The Pharisees built up these artificial walls that said, well, you can do this on the Sabbath and you can't do that on the Sabbath. One of the things they said you couldn't do is carry your mat. You can't carry your bed on the Sabbath day. 
And so they look at this guy and say, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath day? This guy says, well, Jesus told me to do that. You know, the guy who healed me told me to do this. They're not interested in him being healed, by the way. They're only interested in the fact that somebody's running around telling people to break the Sabbath commandment. And so the whole focus now... All of this ends up coming to its fruition in verse 17 and 18, which we didn't read. In 17, Jesus says, My father is working today, like my father is working on the Sabbath, so I'm going to be working on the Sabbath too. And then in verse 18, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. This is a linchpin passage to some extent in the story of God, in the Gospel of John. Up until this point in the Gospel of John, John had, the Pharisees have been curious about Jesus. They've even been a little annoyed at Jesus, perhaps, and eventually they get very suspicious of Jesus. In chapter four, we see that they're kind of really suspicious about who Jesus is. But it's in chapter five when they decide that Jesus needs to be killed. Why? Why that huge turn? Because Jesus is identifying himself with God himself. And that's the focus of this passage. The focus of this text is not on the fact that the man is made whole. The, fact that the focus of this text is not on the fact that it's God's command that makes him whole. The focus of this passage is not on the fact that this man is so uh, unworthy of being made whole. The focus of this text is that it is Jesus who has made him whole, and Jesus is our God. All too often we are surrounded by a world, and we are happy to talk to the world about Jesus as a good, wonderful man, or a brilliant teacher, or He leads me and guides me like the force. That's not our Lord. Anytime we are talking about our Lord and we do not talk and make it clear that we are talking about the divine ruler of this universe, we are doing an injustice to the world because we're not showing them who Jesus really is. We're doing an injustice in our own hearts because we're not acknowledging Him as who He is. This passage turns around the fact that Jesus healed Him on the Sabbath so that Jesus could uh, proclaim His identity with the Father. The Pharisees heard it and they rejected it. We need to hear it. And we need to embrace it. Not because He's a good model to follow. Not because His teachings are really wise. Not because it just fits out well with what we sing together but because our Lord and Savior is God and God alone. You have been redeemed by the Lord, called from a position where you have nothing to give so that you might be blessed with everything to worship and serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's continue to do so as we live together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the love and the care that you pour out upon us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our God. Now and forever we acknowledge who you truly are. And we dedicate ourselves anew to you at this time, now and forevermore. Amen.